We'll be looking at John 13, verse 31. We're in a series in John's Gospel. It's the night before Jesus dies. He's gathered with his disciples in an upper room. They're sharing a meal together. We saw last week him wash their feet. And just before our reading starts in verse 31, Judas, the one destined to sell Jesus out to the Roman authorities, to the Jewish religious top dogs, has left to do just that. So Judas has just left. And we pick up what's happening in John 13, verse 31. When Judas was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If it the, that were not so, I would have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. How much would you uh, give up for love? How much would you give up for love? I guess you could read that two ways, couldn't you? You could read it in terms of how much would you be willing to sacrifice to make someone else love you, to earn love. Or you could read it as how much, because you are so loved by someone, are you willing to change for their sake, to modify who you are and what you do for them? His, um, his used to be slightly more royal highness than he was a couple of weeks ago, Harry Windsor, said this about his state of life and marriage to Meghan Markle. He said, I have found the love and happiness that I had hoped for all my life with Meghan. He said, therefore, he was willing to step back from the family and all that he'd ever known in search of a, a more peaceful life. It's extraordinary, isn't it, actually? In one way, Harry is giving up really everything he's ever known because he, he's found love, he says, with this woman. And at the heart of Christianity is receiving love and then giving love. 
First, as Jesus, the Son of God, in love, goes to a cross and dies in our place so that we can be brought into a loving relationship with God. And then as he calls you and me to live a cross-shaped life that demonstrates that love to others. At the heart of Christianity is first receiving love and then giving love. It's giving love when we have received love that we cannot earn. And it's giving love, a love that's of a quality and a nature that does not come naturally to us. And we have no hope of giving on our own. Now, we've already seen that the cross is the backdrop to what's going on in John 13. In verse 1 of this chapter, John tells us it's Passover time, that time in the Jewish year when bloody sacrifice was on the agenda, when they remembered how they were rescued, the Israelites, from Egypt by the death of the Passover lamb. Its blood poured out as a substitute for the firstborn son of each household. That's what's in the the mind of the the Jewish audience at Passover time. Their sons rescued by sacrifice. And we saw last week Jesus do an extraordinary thing. I love John 13, verse 3 to 5. It makes no sense. Have a look down. This makes no sense in our our power-grabbing world. Jesus what Jesus does in John 13, 3 to 5. Let me just read it to you again. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus knew that he had all power and authority and he'd come from God and he was returning to God, so he got up from the meal, stripped down like the lowest servant, and washed the feet of the men who were just about to abandon him. And it's not just some divine pedicure. It's a picture of what Jesus is going to do the next day. How he's going to, on the cross, in his death, cleanse people once and for all from their sin. How he's going to deal with the way they fail to love God and love one another. And as Judas is identified as the betrayer, Jesus sends him out. Go, do what you've got to do quickly. Now what does this look like? Here's the Son of God about to be betrayed. In less than 24 hours, he's going to be butchered. And look how he describes the moment in verse 31. Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Here's the first thing we need to see this morning, the glory of the cross. But God, in his Son, is never more glorious than when he hangs a bloody wreck outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Now, that might sound like madness to you. Doesn't it sound like madness? To, To be glorious in our culture is to be successful, to be powerful, to be famous, to have the most followers on your Instagram account, or the most money in your bank account, or or the most security in your love account. But but here, Jesus' death on the cross, it looks so weak, 
so pathetic, so tragic. But that is where he is most glorious. In fact, the the very name Jesus uses, Son of Man, would have set the sort of Jewish Bible scholar racing to think about glory because the Son of Man in the Old Testament in Daniel 7 is described as the one given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's glory, isn't it? I mean, we can relate to that. That is glory. And yet Jesus says, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified as he dies as a bloody wreck at the hands of men. But because there is where he fulfills his father's plan to rescue people. Did you see that in verse 31? It's not just that the son is glorified. God, the father, is glorified. But because the son, Jesus, is the loving savior who lays down his life for us, but the father is the giving father. The giving father who gives his one and only son for us. You ever pondered how the father felt as he watches his son bear the sin of the world at the cross, the giving father who sends his one and only son to perish in our place so that we don't have to. And in case we're we're in any doubt about the glory of this plan, verse 32 tells us that it has a wonderful end. The father's not just going to simply abandon his son. This isn't a, a plan where he has lost his son forever. No, he will be glorified because of the way he obediently goes to the cross. He will be raised that people might worship the one who laid down his life for them. Now, I think deep in our psyche, we do know that sacrifice is actually the heart of glorious love. I mean, it's written through our history, through our literature, you know, you, you might like Dickens and the Tale of Two Cities. I've never read it, but going for other highbrow culture in Avengers Endgame. That's what's happening, isn't it? As Hawkeye and Black Widow wrestle in love to lay down their life so that the other doesn't have to. Or it's a little bit closer, so I won't wreck it for you. But it's Star Wars. I'm not going to say what happens. Don't worry if you haven't seen it. But right at the end, one character gives up their life force so that another might live again and as a result dies. We know that sacrifice is the heart of glorious love. And people will die for those they love, won't they? But I have never heard of anyone planning to give their son to someone who rejects and hates them. I have never heard of someone willing to lay down their life for people who ignore them and cheat them treatly, treat, treat them treatly and blank them. You see, that's, that's the sort of love that you only find in God, Father, Son, and Spirit. A love for people who are deeply unlovely. A, a love for you and me. And if you want to know, therefore, what God is like, you need to look no further than the cross. If you're not yet a Christian here this morning, we want you to look at the death of our founder. Please look there 
to see what God is like. As you see the great giving father who in the face of hatred gives the son and the loving son who in obedience to his father and out of deep love for us gives up his life in our place. Suffering, yes, unspeakable physical pain, but more suffering the spiritual agony of bearing the righteous anger of God, Father, Son and Spirit on us that we deserve for the way we've treated him and each other. Here is love, vast as the ocean. How deep the Father's love for us. This is the glory of the cross. It's a determined love. It's a faithful love. It's an unchanging love. It's an unconditional love because you cannot earn it and you do not have to. It is a determined love. It is a unique love. It is a powerful love that brings change in life. God is never more glorious than the cross. And that makes the next few verses all the more challenging because it's love like that that Jesus talks about as he talks about the purpose of the cross. Look at verse 33 with me. My children, I'll be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I don't know what you'd be like the night before you were going to die. But Jesus is still tender towards his disciples. It's a a word, my little children. He wants to reassure them, I'm going somewhere and you cannot come. I've told the Jews already back in John 7, they cannot do this. This mission that I have is a unique thing. Only the precious Son of God can go to a cross to lay down his life for sinful people. Only I can do this. But, But that doesn't mean that the disciples are incapable of of echoing this love. Look at the job description that that Jesus gives them in verse 34. A new command I give to you, love one another just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, now in one way you might say, well, come on, we're we're almost, what, seven-eighths of the way through the Bible, and this is a new command about loving one another? I mean, surely loving one another was writ large through the Old Testament, and it was. The book of Leviticus in chapter 19, we're told to love our neighbor as ourself. That's what the Israelites were told. But this is a new command because tomorrow the disciples are going to see a new quality of love. A love that creation has never seen before. A love that is unique and glorious. And so Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. And there is our biggest issue this morning. Love one another as I have loved you. Not love one another as you feel towards them. Not love one another as they love you. But Jesus Christ says, love one another as I have loved you. Do you see how he repeats himself? I guess, I guess he knows that we will do anything to wriggle out of this new command. So three times he says in two verses, you've got to love one another. And you've got to do it as I have loved you. That's the command, love one another as I have loved you. That's the quality of this love. 
You see, we've turned love in our culture into the way other people make me feel about myself. That's what love is. Sometimes we, we know that love is doing what I don't want to to my nearest and dearest, but usually we attach to that only if they, sometime in the near future, do something for me. So I, in pain, will wash up as long as my wife will put the kids to bed. But I'm not going to wash up and put the kids to bed while she reads her novel in the sitting room. You see, love in our culture is about the way someone makes us feel about ourselves. It's a sort of transaction, isn't it? The love of you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. It's a sort of self-gratifying emotional bargain. But God's love, real love, true love, it's a determined action to do good to another however they treat you. And that means love for us begins at the point of self-sacrifice. There are actually two purpose clauses that are slightly hidden in, in our translation. Literally, verse 34 says, A new command I give to you so that you might love one another, just as I have loved you so that you also might love one another. In other words, as Jesus dies on the cross, he does it, yes, so that we might have a relationship with our loving Father in heaven and know his love. But as Jesus hangs on the cross, he does so, so that we might therefore love one another. So in the mind of Christ, as he hangs in agony for us, is the fact that he is doing this so that you might love the other people in this room. And the people who can't be here today because life is so tough, and the people who don't want to be here today because they are drifting from Christ, as Jesus hangs on the cross, in his mind is, I am dying so that they might love one another. Now that doesn't need illustrating, does it? I mean, Jesus gives us the illustration, it's his death. If I want to understand what this love looks like, I look to the cross. It's a love that takes the initiative. doesn't wait to be asked. That's what Christ did for us, isn't it? It's a love that seeks out the good of others, even if they're, they're hostile towards us. It's a love that's humble. There's, there's no hint of, of self-righteousness, of, well, they haven't done anything for me about this love. It's a love that happily stoops to meet people where they're at, as Christ stooped from heaven to meet us where we are at. It's a love that's sacrificial. It's willing to bear a great cost for others, to give up time or to give up money or to give up comfort or to give up our privacy and the safety of our homes. It's a love that gives. It's a love that, that doesn't do things when it suits us, but does things when people have needs. It's a love that, that actually breaks into our lives and transforms our hearts and means that God can use us even to break into other people's lives and through us transform their hearts. It's a love that lays aside our desires for the sake of others' needs. It's a love that doesn't bear grudges but forgives completely. I mean, if... 
if you're here today and you have a Christian brother or sister who you have not yet forgiven, can I urge you to, to think of the Lord Jesus hanging upon the cross and saying to you today, I love you like this so that you might love them. And don't expect it to be easy to love like this. It's not going to be easy. I mean, the Lord Jesus Christ, the night before he died in Gethsemane, he cried out, Father, not, not take this cup from me. He was in agony. If he struggled like that to love, how are we going to struggle to love like this? It'll be a battle against our will. Don't, don't expect this love not to be painful as the Lord Jesus stumbles up the road to the cross. He, he's in agony. Loving others is hard work. Don't expect this love not to be costly. It costs the Lord Jesus his, his life. It's going to cost us. Genuine love is always painful because it involves killing self. And our problem, of course, is we're wired for self-love. We're convinced that Though we're created in the image of God, whose Father, Son, and Spirit and gives in love, we're convinced that the world will be best and we will be happiest when we love ourselves and other people love us. It's, when, it's why in, in our culture, when people are struggling, they convince themselves the best thing they can do is do less for others and do more for themselves. But the Bible says that is the route to unhappiness because that is the route to selfish sin, whereas it is self-giving in love is the route to being Christ-like, which is the route to joyful service. Now, this is an extraordinary love. It's an extraordinary love, isn't it? And do you see what will happen if we love one another like this? Did you see that in verse 35? Jesus said, By this everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Can you imagine if, if we were a community who consistently loved each other like that, the difference that would make? That's the way, Jesus says, people will know that you're my disciples, by the ridiculous way you love one another. This, this group of people gathered together only by me through, through the cross, the way you love one another will demonstrate to the world that that you're my disciples because Jesus' love is unique and therefore when we love as an echo of his unique love, well then we show the world what he is like and that we follow him. You know that, don't you? Being a Christian is not being an admirer of Jesus Christ. It's not sort of sitting back and going, it's extraordinary, the love of God in the Lord Jesus. That is amazing. I worship you, Jesus, for, for being like that. Being a Christian is about being a follower of Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another, following him. And if we want the world to see Christianity as a, as a religion of self-giving love, as a religion of non-judgmentalism, as a religion that basically consumes the whole of your life, then, then we need to love like this. We need to be those who throw open our hearts and throw open our homes and throw open our lives to one another 
that, that they, that we might be a people who, who have a distinct sacrificial love. Jesus says, verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Now, just think, now, what's, what's going to change practically? Because Jesus says that to you this morning. What's going to change practically? Because it's, it's very nice, isn't it? To think, yes, I must love people. But, but quickly we go back to the world's view of love, which is, I must feel nicer about the people in this room. But what's going to change practically? Who, who is there who you could invite in to your life? Who is there who you could help out practically with their family? Who is there who relationally would value your company? Who is there who needs a word of encouragement? Peter, Peter, he, he hears the Lord Jesus, doesn't he? With this, this extraordinary challenge of love. And do you, do you see what he says? He says, bring it on. That's what Simon Peter says. So let's just look lastly at the necessity of the cross. The necessity of the cross. You know, Simon Peter hears the challenge to love others. And he thinks, well, whatever you say, Jesus, I am totally capable of it. Now, those who know me might, might not be surprised to find that I don't find it too difficult to understand Peter, a hot-headed, impetuous, overconfident egotist who believes that he is genuine, the savior of the world, is a man that I can relate to all too easily. This is a man that won't take no for an answer. So he says to Jesus in verse 36, Simon uh, Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but now you will follow later. Jesus gently answers Peter. He's already in the first half of chapter 13 had to teach Peter that he needs to be washed clean by Jesus. But here again, he's trying to teach Peter, you cannot follow me now. Whether he's saying to Peter, look, you will follow me later. You will come to heaven with me. Or whether he's saying to Peter, you will follow me later. Yes, you will also die because of what you believe about me. That's seems to be what Christian tradition teaches about Peter. He also was crucified. We don't know. But Peter, he's not listening, is he? So Peter says in verse 37, Lord, why can't I follow you? I will lay down my life for you. Or literally, I will lay down my life on behalf of you. All the way through John, Jesus has been saying, I am the good shepherd. I will lay down my life on behalf of my sheep. But Peter still thinks, no, it's about me laying down my life on behalf of you, Lord. I'm going to do that. He still doesn't have the reality of his own need of the cross of Christ. Did you see how Jesus answers him in verse 38, the first two words? Will you? Will you? Will you really lay down your life on behalf of me? I tell you how loving you are, Peter. You'll deny me three times before you even hear the cock crow. Now, couldn't Jesus say that of any of us? Any of us when we think that we can pull off loving Christ and one another in our own strength. 
In our life group this week, we were studying this passage with many of you, as many of you were, and uh, one person in our life group, when reading verse 34 and 35 about how we need to love one another, very wisely did this. Well, that's it. We're stuffed. There's absolutely no hope of me doing that. And they were right. Exactly right. That's the problem with Peter. My, my, my life following Christ is littered with occasions where I've heard challenging talks, a bit like the one I've just given you, and I've thought, yes, I'm going to do it. No, I really am. This time, I'm going to pull off some genuine loving other people for the first time in my life consistently. And it's as though Jesus says to you, will you? <laughs> Listen for the birdie. By then, you'll have messed the whole thing up again. You see, Peter's problem is he hasn't accepted yet that he can't do it. That he can't love Jesus as Jesus loves him. That's why he needs Jesus to die for him. That's why he needs Jesus to destroy the power of sin in his life, to smash his self-love at the cross, and to pour the spirit of love into his heart. That is the only hope that Peter has to follow Christ and to love others. And that's the only hope for, for you, for me this morning. That's what Peter needs to realize. Jesus doesn't love us because we say we're willing to die for him. Jesus doesn't love us because of our efforts. No, he loves us despite our self-love. Even when we deny him, he loves us despite our half-hearted love. Even when we fail him, he loves us despite our cold love. Even when we struggle to deny our own desires. You need the cross. I need the cross. The only hope we have of loving one another is coming back to the foot of the cross and looking once again upon what the Lord Jesus has done for us. I love the fact that in, in the original, there's no break between chapter 13 and 14. No break at all. So Peter is told, you know, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before you hear the cock crow. What's the very next thing Jesus says to him and to the gathered disciples? You're going to fail me, Peter. But don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. I've got this, Peter. There's no way you can do this, but I've got this, Peter. You're going to fail me. But I'm going to a cross, Peter, and trust me, I've got this. I'm going to make a place for you in my father's family. I'm going to ensure that you can be welcomed home to heaven forever. I've got this. And that's what Jesus says to you this morning. In your failure to love people as you want, he says you haven't got a hope of pulling it off. But don't worry. Don't let your heart be troubled. I've got this. It's not about how much you love me. It's not about how much you lay down your life for me. It's about what I'm going to do for you tomorrow, Peter. You can't do this. But don't worry, I've got this. I love you. Come back to the cross. And then go and love one another. Let's pray together.